Welcome back to the Amazon Private Label Show podcast. Today's episode, we have a special guest for you. We have Sam Hill, who runs a company called Ecom CFO. He has been in and around the e-com industry for, for a few years, and his clients are big seven, eight figure Amazon sellers. So he has a unique perspective on what's currently happening with happening with Amazon, what uh, is going to happen in the market, and just what works and does not work. A little different from the traditional guests, but thought this would really benefit uh, our audience to, to learn a different perspective. He also happens to be a good friend here in Austin. So without further ado, here is the interview with Sam Hill. Sam Hill, my man, thank you for joining the Amazon Private Label Show podcast. Sam Hill, as I just mentioned, is the CEO of Ecom CFO. Um, we're going to get into that a lot more here in a second. Just give, give the folks kind of an introduction of where you grew up, uh, kind of you, the early stages of, of your world. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks so much for having me, Mike. And, uh, it's awesome for our relationship to come from cosmic coffee and you asking me, uh, what my company was from the, the label on my hat to sitting in this podcast studio today. And I'm, I'm so happy that we don't actually need this heater because it's 70 <laughs> degrees outside. Uh, that's awesome. But just a little bit more uh, about me that actually maybe you do or, or don't know. Uh, I'm originally from Mobile, Alabama. Most people from small town Alabama don't leave. Uh, but I was always interested in business and entrepreneurship. And uh, my godfather had a, a very random business. They sold uh, they changed out air filters in hospitals and, okay. uh, I would, that would be my summer job. I would go into these like operating rooms or on the roofs of, uh, hospitals and other large businesses and change the air filters. And, uh, <laughs> I was so excited cause I learned that's like the first time I actually learned about business and how it worked and invoicing and servicing and optimizing routes and all these different things. And I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And their business was actually based in Tuscaloosa. And uh, so the first time I went there and I went into the warehouse, I was just amazed. And my, my mind went right from the start of, okay, how can we make this better? And, and that's really where my entrepreneurship um, thoughts and like were able to be manifest and, and set me on a path for that. Um, but I didn't do that. I played baseball my entire life and I wanted to play professionally. And the short answer is I wasn't good enough. And so after college, after the MLB draft, uh, I went to go work for a small startup. I was doing energy audits for houses. Uh, so I was in people's attics and crawl spaces. I had a thermal gun. I had this big thing called a blower door. Uh, then we would do, uh, air, air tests to see how leaky the, the homes were, but I was doing everything. I was doing the audit. I was managing the crews. I was doing invoicing, uh, and everything else on the back end. And so, uh, from there I went to work for mayor electric cause I didn't, I didn't make any money. So I wanted to do something, uh, like more towards my degree, which was accounting. And uh, then I got bored and went to business school, got my MBA at Vanderbilt, did what every good MBA does and either goes to work for consulting or investment banking. And I chose consulting. Didn't really like that. Um, it wasn't about the workload. It wasn't about the, the hours or the travel. I just didn't like what I was doing and I wasn't passionate about these gigantic companies and knew I wanted to, uh, I was only gonna be happy if I went out on my own. So I finally started just freelancing through Upwork and then, and I was so pumped to do hundred dollar projects and then two hundred dollar projects. And so, and just it, to interject, what what are we what are we freelancing? What's your service? I at was that point? I would have done anything for anyone. <laughs> That's a dangerous, <laughs> any, dangerous. Any, yeah, anything finance operations or like strategy related, I would have done. So I built a ton of different financial models, helped people put together their pitch decks help them on research and strategy if they're raising capital, 
or if they had an existing business, how to make it more profitable. But I was doing all types of businesses. I had private equity. I had real estate clients. I had e-commerce. I had SaaS. I even had a professional poker player as a client. And that was, that was wild. But, um, then I eventually decided, Hey, if, if I'm actually going to build a business, I need to choose. Mm. And I chose e-commerce for a number of reasons. One, I really liked all the people in e-commerce. Uh, they were very comfortable with remote work. This is very pre pandemic. And I always thought that finance and accounting was such a great piece of those businesses, but all of the founders that I was working with, they don't, they didn't know anything about finance and accounting. They were so marketing and ops focused and they were missing that financial piece. And that's how Ecom CFO uh, was born. Now we have uh, about 12 employees. Uh, I think we'll be a million dollar business this year. And uh, our employees are, are all over the country and all over the world. We have about 14 clients. We represent about $200 million of revenue now uh, in the market, which is really cool. And uh, we, we certainly do a lot of work for Amazon sellers, but also some people that sell uh, across Amazon, Walmart, Target, Chewy, um, Etsy, eBay. I mean, you name it, we've pretty much touched it. I love it. So, all right, we fast forwarded a little bit there. So you are creating an Upwork profile. You're doing any any service uh, that someone will pay you for. And then Ecom CFO is, is at where it is today, which is thriving. Uh, and so how long when you decided Ecom CFO was your full-time gig, where are you at that point? And then take me through, uh, obviously we just got to today, but are you still working a job at that point? No, no. Um, so there's a, a, a smaller tangent that covers like two years of my life and that's living in New York and, and working for a different startup that ultimately went bankrupt. And so the startup went bankrupt. Uh, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time and decided just to hit the reset button and I moved to Lisbon, Portugal and I lived abroad and I just wanted to prove to myself that I could make enough money working remote mm. by myself. And it seems every time we look back at the past, it seems more black and white than it really is, but it was very gray and very stair step of, okay. I'm going to plant my flag and I'm going to stop taking clients that aren't e-commerce. But that, that took maybe six to eight months or almost a year to cycle through all of those people that, um, weren't a great fit for an e-commerce brand. And, you know, when you're just starting out and you're at the level that I was, you're so scared of losing clients or you're so scared of, of losing something and someone picking up the phone and saying, Hey, we, we're not going to renew our contract anymore. We can't work together. And so I was, I wasn't, I didn't have enough leverage to end all of those contracts or relationships right then and there. It was very stair step, phase them out, very muddy. And it just looks good. And it looks more organized <laughs> today than it was two years ago. Damn brother. I didn't know about Lisbon. Uh, what an adventure. Okay. So you, you are truly living the digital nomad pre pandemic, pre when it's hot. So how did you decide, obviously you have an accounting background, something we, we very quickly connected about or commiserated about. Um, how did you decide you wanted to dip into e-commerce on the finance side and not necessarily just create your own business like how did did you weigh that at all or was it just something i'm i'm in the services niche i don't want to think about capital let's do what i'm good at but what why don't you explain kind of how that come came about yeah sure um and it wasn't it some of it was intentional uh i believed that e-commerce was going to continue to grow so it was a good good market to be in. And as I was slowly building the business and, and again, around this time frame, it was just me, maybe one or two part-time contractors, maybe. Um, but 
I had to make the choice of, do I want to build a bookkeeping business mm. or do I want to focus on the higher end kind of CFO type responsibilities? And I think traditional accountants and other firm owners that I've talked to, they all started on the bookkeeping side and they slowly built a CFO function or financial modeling or whatever you want to call it. I think one of the best decisions that I'm, that I made is starting more upstream and mm. perch, or conveying to the market that myself and our team are really good at the CFO and financial modeling side first, because that's what everyone actually wanted at all of the e-commerce owners, Amazon businesses, they all view bookkeeping as the afterthought and they don't want to pay for it. Uh, so that's why I called our company Ecom CFO, not like Ecom bookkeeping, because that was a, a higher tier service and that, that better reflected the work that we were actually doing. And I knew that I could always build out the backend bookkeeping because that was the easier part. It's just like, uh, I equate it to Tesla, like Tesla started, it's always easier to go down market. Mm. So Tesla came out with the $100,000 Roadster first, and then they built the $30,000 sedan after they got adoption and, and figured some stuff out. So I took a, if there's a few things that I learned from business school, that was, that was one of them. And so that part was very intentional. Yeah. Start with your competitive advantage, especially over these, I mean, there's what hundreds or thousands of e-com bookkeeping or, or automated services. And so that obviously put you at the forefront of no let's uh let's not make this an afterthought let's look forward because that is as as an e-com business owner it, it's not an afterthought but it is tedious and sometimes you can't find time on your specific calendar so having someone that actually goes forward and tells you things you don't know like you guys uh it's so valuable um yeah Awesome. So you basically started just true grit, it sounds like. And now you're back in the U.S. Uh, this is going all the way back a couple of years. What did your first couple clients look like? Like how big were they in size? And then what was your what was your capacity as a firm? Yeah. So our first few e-commerce clients were certainly less than a million in sales, uh, probably closer to hundred thousand or maybe 200,000 and they needed uh, very simple financial models. And, you know, when you're, whether you're just starting out or you're an eight figure brand, uh, a lot of the problems are the same. It's just the numbers are different. Mm. And so, but your, your needs are, are relatively similar. You have to make sure that you have enough cash and you've projected your cash flows and you know when the cash outlays are going to happen what's due in the next 30 days what's due in the next 60 days what's due in the next 90 days and do i have enough cash to cover it and that's not just for your existing business but also okay well how fast can i afford to grow can i add five new products can mm. i add 10 new products and then some basic scenario analysis around okay well can i advertise more? Um, can I afford for this product to not reach my you know, revenue per day goal or sales per day goal for two months while I, while I work on the reviews or the listing or um, optimization in some way? So again, I mean, it, it, they're fairly basic tools, but they just get more complex as the business becomes more complex. As you get more suppliers, then you have, you have unique terms with each supplier. Maybe one supplier requires a 10% deposit and they're, you know, they require uh, 50% upon order, 50% upon ship or, or 30 days after. But um, as you, as you increase the number of suppliers, that complexity increases and you have to build that into the model and uh, into your cash flow and, and into your financials and your uh, accounting systems. And so, yeah, it's just the numbers and, and the, the levers get a little different and, and increase. And, um, uh, as you, you didn't ask me this question, but <laughs> this yeah, is where this is kind of what leading is, you know, as, as you grow and scale, it just becomes more important to have someone to give you not just doing the books, but I think a lot of our clients, 
the feedback that we get is they appreciate that we're making them more disciplined. Yeah. Because we're forcing them to actually look at their financials and not just sweep them under the rug. And because we, I think we as business owners, we like to just think, oh, okay, yeah, we have a good idea what's happening in our mind, but we're not actually budgeting. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to my girlfriend last night and we were talking about like, when's the last time anyone's, any millennial <laughs> has, has um, reconciled a checkbook? Uh, zero. If I have to write a check, it's over. But uh, like, I don't, yes, I look at my credit card statements and <laughs> I generally, you know, obviously I know how much I have in the bank and, and blah, blah, blah. But am I actually creating a budget and holding myself accountable for that budget every month? No. And, and we're doing, that's what we're doing for, for businesses. It, it's like anything you don't track, you're not going to get better, you know? And so what you do, whether, it, whether it be weight, your fitness, your budget, uh, your health metrics. If you don't know what what they are, you can live in this ignorance is bliss mentality. But when running a business, especially e-commerce, making making decisions that often, especially for your brands, probably last two three years, like launching a product or deciding to switch suppliers. It's like making that without knowing to the highest degree of certainty you possibly can is absolutely out outrageous. And so, yeah, what, what you guys do is, is insane how, and it's also this industry and we preach this to our students, like a lot of people don't want to look at the bottom line just because they're going, they're going, they're going. A lot of more creative types are running the business and just can't be bogged down with numbers. And so, yeah, it's it's insanely valuable. Um, okay, so what? Uh, going back more to your business before we move a little bit into just general Amazon, uh, here and over there. What? Uh, are you are you working with mostly? Oh, like resellers, private label, wholesalers. What's a uh, what's your clientele look like? It's really all across the board. We have. Um, we have one client that's the, I think, and on any given day, he's between the 15th and 20th largest Amazon seller in the world, wow. which is pretty wild. Uh, but he's a pure play Amazon reseller reseller. Yeah. So he has, um, he's working with a, you know, a large broker that kind of brokers, uh, his products between 700 different factories in China. And, you know, he's bringing all of his product and he owns his own warehouse. Uh, and then he strategically ships product to Amazon uh, as, you know, inventory levels decline or increase to avoid the storage fees and the additional fees. And it's, it's cheaper for him uh, to own his own warehouse. I mean, the warehouse is gigantic. Mm. Uh, Where is it at? Just curious. It's in the southeast. Yeah. <laughs> probably by your hometown <laughs> yeah not not too far yeah um so so we have we have those guys we have uh, other uh more brands that are building um uh, i guess more traditional brands that are doing a lot of facebook ads and and google ads and they're hybrid they're selling on their own shopify stores they're selling on amazon they may be selling wholesale i think wholesale is actually a really interesting conversation i've seen some clients um, use that sales channel more often and i think it's becoming more popular um, we have some clients that refuse to sell on amazon for for whatever mm. reason and i think that one thing I've learned is we as business owners, we all think that we're special and we all think that we're unique and Amazon, <clears throat> whether it's Amazon or Shopify or, or whatever the platform is, we just have to recognize what game that we're playing. And we're, at the end of the day, we're a business selling through a certain number of channels to maximize profitability. And Amazon, of course, has uh, a lot of upside and it has some downside as well. But again, it, you have to have the, that awareness of this is the game that, that you're choosing to play and understanding all the rules 
and the trade-offs. And uh, I mean, we of course have seen um, our clients be super successful on Amazon and launching in new countries and in Europe and Australia and, and Japan. Mm. And uh, and that's been really interesting too, so. How, how difficult, and obviously this is part of, part of entirely what you guys do, how difficult most of most of our listeners not all but our our amazon sellers are or going like early stage amazon sellers when you decide okay i've started on am let's just take one scenario i've started on amazon it's time to really develop my my own brand website starting to get branded branded keyword searches uh x y and z how difficult is it to to fully integrate uh and, and kind of understand say, say you're selling on shopify amazon walmart when is it worth it necessarily versus going to horizontal instead of vertical i this has been always a question what the reason i ask is because i always go through this dilemma is i do 85 to 90 percent of sales on amazon for my main brand and if I allocate effort to Shopify, to Walmart, to eBay. eBay is not really serious, but anywhere else it, there are results, but then I'm like, what, what am I, the, the results are minuscule for, for my niches compared to Amazon. So like when, what does the integration look like and when, how do you think about that in terms of value? Sure. Well, I think it's always worth it to allocate some percentage of your time to test new channels and new opportunities, whatever that may be. If it's if it's Shopify, if it's Walmart.com, if it's Etsy, if it's going door to door in your <laughs> city or to a, a small boutique or, or, or something like that. Like for example, we have a, um, a client that sells very high end straight razors. Okay. And he's been primarily Amazon probably about 30%, maybe 40% Shopify. And he was testing FAIR, F-A-I-R-E, mm -hmm. the wholesale platform. And he didn't have a, a, a lot of success, but I, I was talking to him, I was like, what if we got more creative and just created a cold email campaign to mm. all of the small salons in Southern California and just hit them up and see if they're interested send them, or send them some samples. And, and obviously there's, there's a way to separate and stratify all those customers. If you think they're going to be, uh, a higher chance of conversion, maybe you do send them a sample. If not, maybe you just send them a cold email, but something that, that that's more creative. Again, I think that a certain percentage of your time is worth experimenting on, on whatever that may be. But from my perspective, I mean, again, I don't want to get too far ahead of my skis because I am a <laughs> more CFO and accounting person than I am marketing, but I, I've seen just so many different yeah. scenarios. You're in the game, man. I'm in the game. And uh, I think it's very product dependent. Okay. And I think if you have, I think the more um, your product resembles something that's a commodity, my guess is you're going to have less success on, mm. on something like Shopify or Etsy, maybe you'd, you'd have success on Walmart because there's a, a ton of commodity products on walmart.com. Uh, but if you have something that's uh, more of a brand, uh, I see those clients be more successful and less interested in selling on Amazon because there's still this like, um, I don't know if it's a bias or just belief that highly branded products can't make it on Amazon. And and I think that there's some some companies that some brands that do extremely well on Amazon. I'm not I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying that, that I think that that's the argument that some of my clients are making. Interesting. No, that that was uh that's such a nuance. That's such a great point cuz if you're a commodity it, Amazon is the old I mean Walmart too if 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 you're a dinosaur, I suppose, or if, if you just prefer that, but Amazon is the commodity marketplace at the end of the day. 
And so anything that's more unique and less commoditized, I would think would do better on Shopify is what you're saying. I, I, that totally makes sense. Well, yeah. And I think that that's true also because you can, the, the more people trust your brand and the more you invest in your brand, the, you should be able to command a higher price point. Right. And then that unlocks your ability to invest 20 or 30% of sales on ads. And, And that's the game that everyone's playing is, you know, if we're thinking about, we can talk about contribution margin. It's my favorite metric of all time. But um, if I'm comparing contribution margins between Amazon and Shopify, I need to come up with something as apples to apples as possible. And what am I, again, what are the trade-offs? If I'm on Amazon, I'm paying the 15% commission. I'm paying FBA fees. I'm paying, you know, 5 to 20% A cost, depending on your product and, and all that stuff. And And so what am I getting? I'm getting a lot of organic traffic mm. and I'm getting a lot of eyeballs and my contribution margins probably in the 20 to 30% range. Okay. Well, let's look at Shopify. I'm probably discounting my product roughly 10%. I mean, if anyone's ever been to a, a website, it's always the 10% for new customers. Um, so I have to factor that in plus, uh, the, the re- Refunds across Shopify and Amazon are roughly about the same, so we'll keep that out. Um, <clears throat> but my main difference is the merchant fees, 3%. Mm, yeah. uh, I've got to pay that versus that's baked into my Amazon uh, expense. And then the ad spend. So yeah. whereas I'm paying Amazon the 15% plus my Amazon ads, mm-hmm. I'm spending anywhere from 10% to up to 50% of sales on ads in my Shopify store, depending on who you are and how long you've done it and what your acquisition strategy has been and, and all that stuff. So again, we just, this is my job, I think as a CFO for a lot of my clients is, um, help them make a good comparison between channels or between decisions in general. And where should I allocate my time and my resources and my team to focus on? Yeah. And yeah, so that that's, basically how I think about it. (laughs) (laughs) No, that is awesome. Um, interesting. Yeah. It's the same way people get overhyped about product revenue numbers in private label. And so we're always trying to overemphasize product revenue numbers don't mean shit because you don't know how that brand, that listing is driving traffic. And so the underlying data of the keyword search demand, that's something shared. And so that a lot of what you do allows people to make real (laughs) educated business decisions unemotionally. And so, and going even further, like, like what you said, what, what I've always felt is start on Amazon. And then when you see branded searches, uh, for your particular brand, that's a good point to start allocating off of Amazon and go to Shopify because it's just what you were touching on. It's, it's, you have this inherent traffic on Amazon where everyone trusts the big, the big boss gorilla, amazon.com. Boom. A lot of people straight up don't even know what brand, sorry to to kill your buzz, some private label sellers who they just bought from. So if you try to put that on a Shopify store too early, which is fine, you can list it, you got to think about how you're going to get traffic and traffic is very hard to get and very hard to get cheap. And so I think just to, just to reiterate, that's, that's such a good point. Um, yeah, that, that's a great point. And that's my blind spot is I'm not, my clients and I aren't usually talking about some of the, the key marketing metrics around search volumes and branded versus non-branded search. Um, and the, the more upstream marketing metrics, CPMs and, and yeah. all that stuff where, where we're getting the data is, okay, well, of course, let's look at customer lifetime value and, and all that stuff. But generally, how much did you spend across each platform for for ads and how do we attribute a return on ad spend for each channel? I love it. Um, okay, so a, another question or two about your biz, then we're going to talk a little bit of just about Amazon and, and have a little it. fun. So your biz... I, 
I don't even know all this stuff, which is wild how much I, I see you. But uh, what what kind of, what size clients do you typically look for? I'm not going to ask you to reveal any of your clients. Even he, he He's in accounting, or he's in finance and accounting. I want to keep all of that uh, just protected. So what what are you looking for? And then kind of just in terms of what they're doing that someone who has a smaller business, like a mistake essentially that a lot of clients who, who sign up with you are making until you, they have you two prong question. I'll, I'll, I'll give it back to you. Yeah. Okay. So what are we, uh, okay. So what does our average client look like or what is our, our range? Yeah, so I mentioned size. the, I mentioned the, the largest, but uh, our smallest clients probably doing 2 million in sales, okay. maybe a little bit less. Uh, but our sweet spot is really like five to 15, um, uh, because we we're not cheap. Mm. We are probably, I think we're the best firm in the country for what we do. Uh, but we're also not the cheapest. Um, and so it's really not the economics don't make sense to mm. hire someone like us until you get to that $2 million range. And so, but leading up to that, I, there's a lot of different stages that I think as someone just starting out where they need to be and how much attention they actually need to give to finance and accounting. Cause I do think I see one, one mistake in clients is investing too much in accounting mm. too soon, because if you're selling a handful of products <laughs> through one supplier, yeah, you don't need a really sophisticated system. You yeah. can run that business on a spreadsheet. Don't worry about your taxes. If it, you need to pay more taxes and generate some revenue. Yeah, we don't yeah. need to do tax. You don't need yeah. to set up a Puerto Rican entity. <laughs> you don't need like 15 different bank accounts. We're not creating shell companies. Like just, right. just, just do it. Just keep doing what you're good at and what's working. And I think there's a, there is also a big question, at least that I see is, do you, are you doing cash accounting or are you doing accrual accounting? Mm. And again, it depends on the complexity of the business, but if you're at a few SKUs, one supplier, and cash is relatively easy to manage, two cash bases of accounting. Yeah. Like you don't yeah. need to make it more complicated. You can still do all your profitability analysis on a spreadsheet or an app or, or whatever. That's totally fine. You really don't need to transition to something more sophisticated. I think until you reach that like half million to million mark, yeah. To be honest, um, def, but but there, I think there is a pretty thick line at the million dollar mark when, that you need to trans uh, transition to accrual accounting, no question. And and then we, you know we can we can go from there, but um, those yeah, are re some real the quick, accrual accounting for people who don't know is just recognizing. Recognizing things like sales and expenses when they are actually deemed recognizable in the financial world, not when your cash goes out. So if you don't know, you're doing cash, which <laughs> <laughs> that's a great rule though. If you don't know, you're yeah, doing cash. That's right. And that's I still do cash. I'm a I'm a main bread because it doesn't make sense to allocate those amount of resources, although it's getting a little close. Uh, and I'm sure I could make a couple better decisions by knowing exactly, uh, kind of like what my balance sheet were to look at. So, okay. And what would you say someone's selling a f multiple six figures, six or 700,000, and they're not quite at, at a point where, where they need financial forecasting you know, firms like you guys let's say that they're private label for most of our sellers helium 10 does helium 10 pulls in all your amazon fees essentially most of your costs are there what else should someone kind of have top of mind or be able to do on on a monthly yearly or or quarterly type basis is there anything that can kind of prepare you before they would let's say come to you two years later and it's a total shit show like what can they do to keep it all somewhat organized yeah no, it's a good question i think at minimum at, at that level of scale having an accounting software solution picked out mm. 
really the the only two options in in my opinion are zero and quickbooks yeah we prefer quickbooks although some people prefer zero i think zero's reporting is really problematic which is and and we chose quickbooks for a number of reasons and and all of our clients are quickbooks and quickbooks online specifically not quickbooks desktop so i think having an, an accounting software picked out and then frankly you can use someone on upwork mm. that's in the philippines or yeah. a, a freelancer who was me five years ago to do your books and to you can keep them on cash basis just to have someone continuously making sure that expenses are categorized and you have a, a decent idea about what's going on doesn't have to be too complicated and then you could take even like a, a course or something or hire a, an e-commerce expert to kind of give you a little bit of guidance and mm -hmm. um, and then implement that with your Upwork person or your person from the Philippines or, or, or whatever. And you can do that very cost effectively. Yeah. And even if it's like a, an advisor or somebody like you or a mentor or even, you know, buy a book. <laughs> uh, but as long as you're starting that accounting hygiene or you're starting the accounting hygiene and it's not a shit show. Yeah two years down the road. Cause I've seen that so many times and it, it sucks. Yeah. Uh, it, it really does. It blows to be unorganized, uh, especially when it comes, comes tax time. And so yeah. real quickly before <laughs> taxes. So what, what do you, if you're a sole proprietor and you have an LLC, you have like the basic fundamentals down. Is there anything, I know you're not a tax expert, so I'm, I'm putting, I'm putting my guy on the spot here, but, uh, is there anything you would recommend that kind of protect you and, and just at the end of the day, save you taxes? Yeah. Well, going back to the kind of common mistakes again, don't make it overcomplicated. You don't yeah. need to be a C corp from day one. <laughs> and I've seen people do that. They're like, oh, we have to create this complex legal structure. And we have to get our Delaware C Corp in order and pay $10,000 for an attorney to set it up. Or they just spend all this time and effort on things that don't matter at that time. Yeah. And so I think starting as a simple LLC or maybe, maybe you want to do LLC taxed as an S Corp. And I mean, we don't have to go into the details. You can, you can Google it and see the differences. I think that's a nice starting point. And then of course, if you want to work with a tax advisor, if you are um, pretty successful and you are making more money, maybe you do want to buy extra inventory or uh, some expenses or something at the end of the year to, to optimize that. But it, you kind of mentioned it. Paying taxes is okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Paying taxes means that you're making money. And we always have to identify what's the what's the cost benefit analysis of all these complex structures versus the opportunity cost of what if you had five more hours in your month or your week to do product research mm -hmm. or test another channel or test marketing, test marketing, yeah. do, or, or, or make 10 phone calls mm -hmm. uh, to potential customers in your city. So um, again, I, I think it's pretty simple business logic of, keep doing what you're good at. And then once you become a, a larger business and you're just raking in mounds of cash, then okay, then that is the time to reach out to someone and say, okay, how can we optimize this? Uh, again, without making it super complex, but then you may transfer to a C Corp or, um, or do something, do something else. Okay. Very cool. Um, okay. So moving, Moving into just broad e-commerce, Amazon market, you see a lot uh, on the back end of what's working, what isn't working. We could we could probably keep going for an hour on what's not working. I think that's a little easier. What do you see that without giving you know client specific products or, or niches or or such? What what do you see that works right now going into twenty twenty three in general? on Amazon specifically. It doesn't have to be on Amazon. In in your your companies like what obviously there's varying degrees of results and and 
there could be nuance factors, but in general, are certain products, business models, methods of running their business higher profit? Like, are there anything that's, is there anything in that front? And it could be specific categories, uh, the way they handle payments off Amazon. Pretty broad, but is anything standing out to you? Uh, one thing that stood out to me last year going into 2023 was so we we implemented quarterly client meetups last year where mm. we got all of our clients together and talked not just about finance and accounting but just talk shop yeah. about what they're seeing and um actually those meetings got uh more personal than i thought because ultimately a lot of the business challenges and obstacles and beth's best paths forward are pretty easy everybody knows what they are but it's more about the the motivation and the behavior change for you as a leader. Mm. And um, I mean, you and I both love Hormozy, but <laughs> one thing that he said recently that really stuck with me is if you want to have an A team, everybody wants to hire A players. Yeah, Nobody wants C players. Um, but if you want A players, you have to be a leader that's capable of leading an A team. And that has really struck with me. And so anytime that you can continue to focus on your own leadership, your own behavior, your own mental clarity, your own fitness, getting mm. your house in order so you can allocate more time and you can show up, even if it's just showing up for yourself, but showing up for yourself and your team as the best version of you as many times as possible throughout the year, that's probably the the best advice and and one thing i don't think we consider as much we always immediately think to okay well how do we need to what's the latest hack and what's chat gpt doing and, <laughs> and all this stuff and that's cool there's a time for that but i think taking a step back and and recognizing all of that that you need to focus on on yourself and your well-being first is uh is critically important and and that really struck me with with one of our meetings the other thing that struck me was people's perspective on the looming recession or what is going to happen with the economy. And I expected our clients to say, oh, well, we're cutting back on expenses. We're, um, we're going to, you know, maybe not hire the person that we thought we were going to. So we're going to, we're going to wait and see. And all of our clients have said, nope, <laughs> like we're, we're continuing to push. We'll deal with it when it gets here, if and when it gets here, and we're going to we're, we're going to be generally aware of it. Yeah, like what can you do? Right, but we're not making gigantic shifts. Like mm. every time you look on in the news now, it's you know Zoom. I think yesterday just announced uh, uh, I don't know a thousand employees or so, I, I don't remember the number, but it was a significant layoff. And every single week has been a different tech yeah. company laying yeah. off and. I don't see our clients doing that. I see them just hiring more mm. and they may renegotiate with their, <clears throat> their marketing agencies for better rates or, Hey, you know, why are you not working as hard as, as you said you were going to on the, on the first part, um, uh, the first part of their engagement, but it, it, they're not making like any significant cuts. They're not, reacting emotionally to a hype not hypothetical to to people's fear yeah but such. they are focused on profits and profitability and i haven't seen um our clients be this profit focused probably until this year and really analyzing their contribution margin and net income and determining okay if i was at five percent last year how do i get to ten percent what does that actually look like? And I think the real secret is our clients are still very much contemplating price increases. Mm. And I think, I think the assumption was all the price increases were just done last year. And I think there's still more to come. It's not as significant as it was last year, two years ago, but it, I think they're still coming. Yeah. Especially with the brands you have, if they have the size and the traffic, that customer is a lot different than brand new 
brand new customers you're marketing to. So if you already have the traffic, raising the price is so much easier. And so, yeah, that is, that is an awesome point. Um, in terms of sticking on profit for a bit, is there something that, let's say your lowest profit versus highest profit, granted the earlier you are in business, you tend to have less profit typically. Obviously there's, there's varying. Anything significant, you're, you're, you're in the weeds. You, you are, you are uh, seeing things that nobody else gets to see. Anything else, anything specific drive a higher profit margin? To, well, I think the, the question that you didn't ask that's important is <laughs> what should I target? Who? Because I get this okay. question all the time. And um, my opinion has uh, changed drastically for the first two years of our business, but it's changed a lot less in the last year in that uh, I really like um, the book Scaling Up, Vern Harnish, yeah. and the you can skip past the first three chapters. There's only four sections of the book, and but the last section is based on cash. And his methodology for profitability and what you should target and how you should look at investing in the business I think is the best thing that I've ever read. And again, mm. as a your audience, I know is is um, skewing towards kind of just starting out or getting traction. So they're they're not going to have they're more than likely not going to have a team, or it's going to be a very small team. So you don't need the first half of the book or the first seventy five percent of the book. And the same goes for the book Traction, Gino Wickman, which is a, another really popular operating system. Skip that book for now, but read the last part of scaling up in the cash section. And basically what he says is we should all be targeting. If you're not at 10%, target 10%. Once you get to 10%, target 15%. Once you get to 15%, mm, you invest the delta between 15% and 10%. So you invest that, that yeah. extra 5% in whatever it is, a new person, more ads, more, products, R&D, whatever it is, new channels, doesn't matter. And then once you invest, you're going to be back down to 10%. Mm. Then you fight to get back to 15, rinse and repeat. That's, over and such, over again. A, that's such a great way to look at it. A yeah. cruel method. Uh, yeah, exactly. A cruel yes. basis. A cruel basis is extremely important. <laughs> that point. is such a good point because so many people in our our students, people who, who we basically interact and help them help start their business are, are trying to hit this. I want to hit 25% or 20 or 30, whatever. It doesn't really matter until you have skin in the game and you're live and can you improve it? And so is there last question on that? Is there a certain cutoff point for these larger businesses where a certain product line just isn't worth the time is like they're a profit margin where they cut it off or is it generally if it's making more money keep going yeah and and we have to there's a, a few caveats here because that the the 10 15 mechanic that i mentioned assumes that you have a reasonable salary for yourself like if, if we're just looking at like your profitability on amazon without any fixed expenses that's a little bit more contribution margin. I'm talking more uh, net income percentage. We uh, not to not to plug, but we did write a really great article on contribution margin <laughs> on our website uh, to define exactly what it was because I I found that I had to explain this so many times. Um, so that that's a really important um, point. But to your question about when do I know to cut something, right? It's it's both art and science. Um, I think the science part is how do, how does it not just look at the individual product, but how does it fit into your entire business? Is it a loss leader? And are those customers uh, purchasing that product? And then are they coming to purchase these other five products? And ultimately that customer is really profitable for you, even though that individual product itself is not profitable. 
And once you've reached a, a certain mass, then any positive contribution margin is good for you. And yes, it may bring down overall profit, but it's it's contributing to your um, your fixed expenses or, or, or break even. So I think about it like that. I think you also need to look through the lens of opportunity cost, of course. Like if this product, if these five products are losers or very low profitability, if there are other products that I could invest in that are going to be higher margin, more than likely I'm going to choose the higher margin ones. But if there's nothing else out there, if I don't have any other choices that I would make, then I'm okay accepting lower profitability because if it, there's nothing else out there. Now there usually is, of course, um, and there's usually higher, uh, higher margin, just activities in general that you could be doing because you're tying up cash and, and all that stuff. And, and that's uh, not to ramble, but that's another important point is if you have a supplier with, and you're ordering 10 products from them, and now you're only ordering seven, are they gonna charge you higher prices? Mm, typically. And so, is it actually to your benefit to continue to carry this product because you get a mm. better deal with the overall product portfolio? Uh, so there's just a, a lot of things to consider, but I, I think the key to your question is not just looking at looking at it on an individual product basis, but how does it impact the whole portfolio and your customers and your business overall? That's such a great point. Like, does it create value in maybe not a direct way, uh, specific actions? Awesome. Um, man, I could go on all day. This is, this is awesome. We got to cut this off. Sam Hill, Ecom CFO, before we run, what, I know you're not, too frequent on socials, but how, if someone wants to get in touch with you, what, uh, what is the best way? Yeah. The best way is to check out our website. It's ecomcfo.co, not.com. Mm. I have yet to find the owner of.com, but if you are and you know them, please send them my way. <laughs> uh, so yeah, ecomcfo.co, uh, we have a schedule a call link. I'm happy to, to have a chat, even if we don't end up working together. We have a couple other cool products and services that we've rolled out. Um, one being just a, a workshop model. So where, you know, you're not paying us the normal monthly retainer. It's like a one, one stop four hour session where we teach you everything that we know about finance and accounting as it relates to e-commerce. And those have been really cool. We actually did one yesterday. Uh, so that's a great way to, to work with us and get 80% of our brains without having this big retainer. And uh, I really hope to be launching some courses this year too um, for, for some of these topics is I just see a, a big, big need for it. We just haven't, we've just been so busy that I, I, I need to allocate more time to it. Talk about R and D and new channels and new products. So uh, yeah, but Mike, this has been incredible, man. And uh, I'm so glad we did this and you invited me and I hope this has been helpful. It's been insane. Sam Hill, my brother. Uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the Amazon Private Label Show podcast. Sam Hill is a killer in the e-com world. So he's, you know, just getting started too in the in the grand scheme. So if you are a bigger seller, it doesn't have to be private label, hit him up or hit me up if you lose his info and I will connect you. Sam Hill, thanks again, brother. Awesome. Thanks, man.